You are listening to Fantasy Film Ball with Matt and Dylan, and on this show, we turn movies into sports and look at all the Oscar prospects and their fantasy value. I believe that this is going to win Best Picture, and here's why. I mean, Denis Villeneuve got all the nominations he needed for Dune and still missed out on the Best Director slot. Don't let me get my hopes up. The Academy has disappointed me too many times. Thank you to the Academy. Thank you to all of you in this room. I can't remember the last time I walked out of the movie theater on such a high. No matter how certain it seems, anything can happen on nominations morning. Never count the Golden Globes for just doing something off the walls and bonkers. It's the kind of movie that reminds me of why I fell in love with movies. And the Oscar goes to... Welcome into episode 33 of Fantasy Filmball. My name is Dill. And my name is Matt, and this is a show where we turn movies into sports, and sports into something we don't talk about here. Today, we have our Oscar nominations. We've already got them. We've discussed them. Go check out that video on YouTube where we react to all of them. But today, we're going to be talking a lot about what's happened over the past week, including some crazy shocks, crazy surprises, and some things we wish happened. But Dylan... It's a whole new world now that we know these Oscar nominations. How are you doing this week? I'm doing good. I'm really happy with some stuff. I'm really not happy with some other stuff in terms of the Oscar nominations. But as we mentioned on that YouTube episode and in previous podcasts, this is our favorite time of the year. This is when we get to finally see what we've been working towards for so many months. And now we're in the final stretch, the home stretch, time to see what will end up taking Best Picture. Exactly. And we've spoken a lot about how the lead-up to everything is, you know, much more fun than actually going towards the wins. But it's still so much fun trying to figure out the wins, and uh, it's so gratifying watching towards Oscar night. So even though our favorite part of the season is past, there's still so much to look forward to. And today, we always start off with a question on this podcast. So Let's look to the good. I know that there's a lot of shocking snubs, a lot of things that we wish happened, but let's talk about the good. What's your favorite nomination that you maybe weren't expecting that you ended up getting? Yeah, so in terms of shock, there was two of them. Because all season long, I said, hey, this movie is getting in for international feature, and I rode the horse all the way into the end, and I, I, I jumped ship. But EO... My little donkey, he made it into international feature, and that made me so happy. In addition to that, another international movie that did not make international feature but still got a Oscar nomination is Bardo and Cinematography. So those were two nominations that weren't really expected that made me very happy. But for expected ones, because nothing's really completely expected, but these ones seem pretty sure, but I'm still happy to see them show up with The Way of Water and Visual Effects, Babylon and Score, and The Batman and Makeup. Those are all great ones, especially the unexpected ones. Bardo, we talked about before that we both said that that should win cinematography. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of both lost faith, and it's there. EO, we talked about so many times that this is probably not getting in. Here it is. That's amazing. And of course, Way of Water, what a deserving VFX nomination. Babylon, what a deserving score. Batman, what deserving makeup. Those are all great picks. Okay, for me, I gotta say that, I mean, if you saw the video of us reacting... You saw me cheer when Women Talking got in. I think it's such an inspired nomination, especially because I think we were all losing hope. I mean, even Sarah Polly was losing hope. Did you see that photo of Sarah Polly at the doctor's office being like, I, did. I really didn't expect anything from this morning. I, I, <laughs> ah. Which, yeah, that's hilarious. Hilarious. So I, I feel uh, Sarah Polly at that point where she said that she didn't expect much and she's so happy. And 
I predicted it all the way to the end, and I'm so glad I did. But in terms of something that actually really shocked me, something I didn't have in my predictions, Brian Tyree Henry getting in for Causeway. If this year proved anything, it's that the actor's branch is really cool, and they're willing to do some very indie stuff. They're very willing to go outside of what's expected to pick some people who you might not expect to get in. Stephanie Hsu, uh, Brian Tyree Henry, Andrea Riseborough. Uh, there's so many nominations from very small films. I mean, not this Stephanie Shu was from a small film. That's not the case because everything everywhere is everywhere in every category. Mm-hmm. Um, but Brian Tyree Henry being here, I think, just showed me not to doubt. Oh, Paul Mescal, that's another indie. But Brian Tyree Henry showed me not to doubt that when a performance is truly great, it's likely going to find its way in, even if the movie's causeway even if it's a very small movie that no one saw. Women talking very deserved for picture. I wish I stayed faithful. I dropped off last second as well to put the whale into my 10. Uh, Women talking is a lot better of a nomination in my opinion. But yes, for the actors branch, um, they get a lot of hate and they get a lot of stuff thrown their way over these last few years. Like being the Ricardo's getting three nominations, this there, this that. But this year they really pulled through, like you said, showing that, hey, we can do cool stuff too. Maybe we're not like the director branch or this branch or that branch we may not go for like these super obscure ones but hey we're making progress we're getting in a more wider more diverse set of yeah. nominees from big movies small movies movies from overseas movies from here and they're doing a great job and i'm just very happy to see where the future of this category is keep going people are always going to complain about the acting nominations because they're the most visible they're the ones in front mm-hmm. of the camera people know them they're the stars people are always going to complain but what i'll say is usually the actor's branch gets it like 60 to 65% right. And then there's some some missteps that happen in there. And this year, I think that there were many more very good nominations than there were serious missteps. Like, I won't get into any missteps right now, but um, I will say that not nominating any black women in lead actress when there were two extremely strong contenders in Deadweiler and Davis, that is a big misstep. Uh, however, it's not to say that any of the other nominees weren't deserving. Um, it, it's it's just a shame. We'll get into that controversy a little bit later and talk more about Best Actress. But overall, I do want to say that the Actors Branch really does deserve some credit for like some of the cool nominations that they did. Paul Mescal, I never expected to see him in... When I first watched that movie, I would have never said he's an Oscar nominee for this, even though he's a great performance. Brian Tyree Henry, when I saw that at TIFF, I walked out of that movie going, wow, Brian Tyree Henry blew me out of the water. Too bad he's not going to get a nomination. Too bad it's too subtle. Too bad this is too good for the Oscars. And here Mm -hmm. we are. And ultimately, that comes down to the actors branch is, is pretty cool. They're pretty cool. I'm very happy for Brian Tyree Henry. He's one of my favorite actors working now. So I can't wait to see how this helps him progress in his career. But speaking of him getting a nomination and everyone that we just mentioned, the Oscars, they, they kind of adjust our film ball game standing. So a lot of points went into this week, and I'm still, even though I mentioned before, very happy Bardo got a nomination. If I made one switch to my team, I technically would be about 100 points behind you in the standings. Yeah, so right now with our team, of course, as always, we're, we're playing this, this game. It's the namesake of the show, Fantasy Film Ball. We each draft a 10-film team at the very beginning of the year, and we let it ride throughout. So currently, right now, uh, we'll, we'll give an update of everyone's team, including what 
Best Picture nominees they have. Uh, so in last place, uh, unfortunately, we have Arno, friend of the show, on all the time. Dead last place with 2,986 points. Uh, even though he has two Best Picture nominees in Triangle of Sadness and Women Talking. Both very low-scoring Best Picture nominees, though. Uh, they are among the lowest. Currently, this year, the lowest-scoring Best Picture nominee at the moment is Triangle of Sadness. It's just over 500 points. Uh, then, in fifth place, we've got Brother Bro. Uh, Brother Bro's team comes in just a little bit over Arno with 3,265 points. And on Brother Bro's team, we've got... Let me just check to make sure I don't mess up anything here. Yeah, Top, Gun got Top Gun Maverick. Top Gun Maverick, and ultimately, I, I thought for a while he was going to have two, because he also had Glass Onion, and he has RRR, uh, but in the end, he just has Top Gun Maverick in there. It's holding up his team. It is a, a, a big, big film. It's nearing a 1,000 points in this game at the moment. Uh, then after that, uh, following that up, we've got Tandem. Uh, we've got our buddy Austin, and Austin has zero zero nominations but even with zero nominations he's got 3377 points he is nowhere near last place with zero nominations and i'll tell you why that is he's got four movies that if we went up to 15 nominations all four of those would be in he's got babylon mm -hmm. he's got the whale he's got black panther wakanda forever and he's got after sun so having all of very those, deep team like it's a very deep team and it shows that the success in this game, it, it doesn't just ride on getting those Best Picture nominations. It's about having films that are strong across the board, even if they don't make it into picture. Could he be doing better? Absolutely. He could if Babylon was swapped out for, like, The Fablemans or something like that. He could, But each of these films is doing incredibly well, especially for the fact that three of those that I just listed barely even broke 60 on Metacritic. Um, they're not the most critically beloved films, but they are killing it with awards, even if they didn't make Best Picture. Then, Dylan, do you want to take us through your team? You're in third place right now. The You're on the podium at the moment. I am on the podium. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I, I lost my spot last year after having a pretty poor draft, after having a great first season in the league. But yeah, if you want to talk about a not critically acclaimed team, that would be Team Dill. I only have one movie that has over <laughs> an 80 from the critics, and that is All That Breathes, a documentary. But, uh, yes, as I mentioned before, I have about 42,000 points, which if you switch out Bardo's 148 for the Fableman's 1,238, I would be about 100 points out of first place. So a pretty yeah. big miss. However, I am the team that has the most Best Picture nominations with three, with Avatar The Way of Water, Elvis, and All Quiet on the Western Front. Well, all we can do in this game, we're never going to be able to predict the future fully. So mm -hmm. all we can do is look for the warning signs. And I'm not sure what we should have seen coming with Bardo, but ultimately getting Bardo there when the Fablemans was still on the board, that's a, a mistake that we hope to not make in future years, right? Exactly, exactly. Right? So don't take Bo as afraid next year, basically. <laughs> Yep. Staying away from Ari Aster, I learned, I think that's my takeaway, is do not draft the director who is coming off of a best director win. Because last year, I took Nightmare Alley with a second overall pick. Game of the Tour coming off his win for Shape of Water. I was like, Bardo, I can't make the same mistake two years in a row. Yeah. The Amigo. So if Alfonso Caron comes out with a movie next year, I am staying as far away as possible from her. 
Yeah, well, this is this is actually the thing that we we've kind of talked about in the past, which is that uh, directors miss, but studios don't. So you know, if if you're looking at these directors and thinking, oh my god, there's no way that director can miss, they can miss, they can miss. Mm-hmm. Scorsese had Silence, right? Spielberg, uh, Spielberg doesn't miss. At least he hasn't so far. Okay, so in second place, we've got Film Drunk. Uh, and Film Drunk and I are both kind of racing for the top score. So Film Drunk has 5,074 points. And he's got two Best Picture nominations right here. But not just two Best Picture nominations, two of the strongest Best Picture nominations. He's got The Fablemans with 1,238 points on its own, and The Banshees of Inishirin with 1,665 points on its own. Those are both heavy, heavy hitters uh, altogether. Like, those are some strong, strong contenders. Uh, And following that up, we've got my team. uh, And for me, my entire team is floating on the backs of Everything Everywhere All at Once and Tar. Now, Everything Everywhere All at Once has 1,957 points which is wild. It's nearing 2,000 points, which, just for reference, last year at the very end of the game, The Power of the Dog had about 2,100 to 2,200 points at the very end. Everything Ever All at Once already almost has 2,000 points. That is just a testament to how strong this movie is, and I am so glad that I had the faith in it in September to pick it first place. Uh, And then I've also got Tar. Tar is also very strong. It overperformed with cinematography and editing nominations, and it's currently sitting at 1,583 points. Uh, And I I just want to also give, for reference, in 2019, the highest scoring film was Parasite with 1,441 points. So already, we've got three films that have passed that. Everything Everywhere, Tar, and The Banshees of Inishirin. So crazy times. It's wild. It's wild. This is a high scoring year. You gotta hit on your early round picks. I mean, you're the first overall pick. You pick the best possible choice. And uh Film Drunk had a very good early parts of his draft as well. He had Fablements, he missed with Empire of Light, but then followed that right up with Banshees well, and has Empire two of the Light, top four scoring films. It's not doing too bad. Empire of Light just crossed two hundred points. So uh, be doing a lot worse. Let me let me see where it's at exactly right now. Empire of Light is at 239 points. That cinematography nomination came in clutch. That was really, really great for that film. So ultimately, it's not doing too bad. It's not like picking The Sun, uh, which unfortunately, Brother Bro, he got The Sun. It's only at 94 points right now, which is really tragic for for a film by Florian Zeller coming off of an Oscar win. Again, you never know if someone who just made an Oscar movie is going to make one again. Well, speaking of that, I think it's time to dive into this year's Oscar nominations and we're going to do a little bit different thing with it. So, Matt, take us away. Let's start off with Best Picture, one film that we each wish just could have been in that lineup. So, with Best Picture, I love this lineup. This is one of my favorite Best Picture lineups we've had in me a too, while. Me too, me uh, It's definitely better than last year's. It's rivaling 2020s. So, we've got All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar The Way of Water, The Banshees of Inishirin, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, Tar, Top Gun Maverick, Triangle of Sadness, and Women Talking. If you were to add one film to this lineup, what would you add? There's a lot of things I could do here, because even though I do love this lineup, I personally would say this is the best lineup of Best Picture nominees since 
I've been born, so 1999. Since then to wow. now, this would be my favorite lineup of Best Picture nominees. It's so strong. It's so deep. To me, maybe its highs don't reach the highs of that Parasite Once Upon a Time of Hollywood year, but it goes so much deeper. Like, There's not a movie here I dislike. However, for this little exercise we're doing today, I don't want to repeat the same movie over and over again because even though there's a lot of movies I saw this year uh, – some movies just rise above the rest, and I feel like that one movie that I could nominate in like tw- like 10 categories, I should just throw it here to Best Picture, and that is Matt Reeves' The Batman. For me, this is the ultimate superhero movie because it puts together multiple genres while also staying true to the characters itself. And with as shaky as adapted screenplay was this year, I feel like The Batman could be a pretty solid like replacement-type nominee. It's like, hey, we adapted our source material, but we also elevated it to a new level. It has amazing cinematography. Mm-hmm editing sound great acting performances let alone the fact that colin farrell paul dano almost got in but barry keoghan as well all got an oscar nominations and they were all in this movie as well you almost had three oscar nominees just in this movie just for you know different roles but overall the batman is just a well-directed movie it's a well-crafted movie and it's a very enjoyable time and a best picture lineup that has a lot of movies pushing three hours the batman does that as well but does not feel like that at all the pacing here is amazing and like I mentioned before, I can nominate this in like 10 categories and call it a day. But if I can nominate in that many, I feel like it definitely deserves a Best Picture nomination out of myself. It's so rare to find a movie that long that flies by the way that that film does. So I'm not going to be as strict on myself as you are. You're limiting yourself to one mention from each film. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to I'm, I'm gonna name a couple of films multiple times, but... I'll make a point as to why each of them deserves that nomination, and I'm going to try not to over-represent anything. So for Best Picture, I'm going to start off by saying that I think animation is is horribly, horribly overlooked. Animation is a medium that I think people treat as child's play, even though sometimes the most expressive films in the world are animated films. And every year usually one of my top favorites is an animated film. Last year, The Mitchells vs. The Machines was in my top three of the year. This year, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is my second favorite film of the year. And that's why I would put it in Best Picture, not just because I love the film, but because I think that we need to get animation back into Best Picture sometime soon. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm currently saying, hopefully next year we can do it with Hayao Miyazaki's Swan Song. Um, Although... Really, with the the performance of Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio this year, despite the fact that it had fantastic reviews, despite the fact that it was nomination competitive in multiple categories, it just couldn't crack in, uh, which I find very, very disappointing. But ultimately, if I'm thinking of what I would want to add to the Best Picture lineup, it'd be some some long-deserved representation for animated films. Going over to Best Director, our nominees that the Oscars gave us were Martin McDonough in The Banshees of Inisherin, The Daniels and Everything Everywhere All at Once, Steven Spielberg for The Fablemans, Todd Field for Tar, and Ruben Austin for Triangle of Sadness. Our foreign director, it rings true, we get one every year, but I know that you would nominate another foreign director if given the opportunity. I would. Uh, we talked about this f- possibility for so long. What if SS Rajamuli gets in? And truly, I can't think of anyone more deserving for a directing nomination. What Rajamuli does in this film is outstanding. It's it's uh, parallel to George Miller's work 
on Mad Max Fury Road. Every single time you believe that they have done everything that they can and they can't get any crazier, they can't do anything bigger, there you go. And your mind is blown all over again. I was so happy to see Raja Muli get some recognition from the Critics' Choice Awards, from the New York Film Critics Circle, but I just so wish that the Oscars could have come along with. And that's why for me, if I were to nominate one more in this category, not replacing anyone, but one more in this category, it would be S.S. Rajamouli for RRR. There is one director this year that was so innovative, who made you feel a part of their world. And I mean, he took forever to make this. And in my opinion, he delivered on every front. And I can't wait to see what he does next. And that is James Cameron for Avatar The Way of Water. This is a movie that did very... I, you could you could say underperformed at the Oscars. It got picture, it got some text, but everything that works for this movie comes directly from James Cameron. Whether it's the visuals, the story, the action, the visual effects, the creative design, this is Cameron's vision that's being brought to life. And kind of similar to last year with Denis Villeneuve for Dune, it's just one of those nominations to me. It's like you feel like this has to come along. It's so impactful, it's so meaningful. And if I could add one, I would add James Cameron. Say no cultural impact as much as you want. I think that The Way of Water has changed the game. That moves us over to Best Actor, where I don't think there will be any Avatar mentioned for Jake Sully. But our actors for the Oscars were Austin Butler and Elvis, Colin Farrell for The Banshees of Inisherin, Brandon Fraser for The Whale, Paul Mescal for After Sun, and Bill Nighy for Living. And I think that our number one choice is the same here. So I'm going to let you talk about this actor here. I'll add a little bit, but then I'll give a little bit of an alternative so we can mention two people instead of just one. So we're both going to be talking about the same person. Eden Dambreen from Close just deserves the recognition. If we were to add one nomination, I mean, for one thing, usually young actors really don't get the recognition they deserve in this category, in any of the acting categories, actually. Like... Young performers deserve so much more attention. And with Eden Dambreen in Close, this is one of the greatest child performances I've ever seen. The sensitivity that this kid brings to the screen, the maturity that this kid brings to the screen. I I don't know how I don't know how they did it. Mm-hmm. Like I've I've heard so many directors who work with kids a lot, like Spielberg uh, or Taika Waititi say that the trick to getting really great performances out of kids is to cast kids that are very similar to the role that you're you're trying to portray. And then the work is easy because they just have to be themselves on camera. This is a role that demands so much uh, emotional energy. And I just, I just don't know how they got that out of a child. I fully agree. And I would level up your comment to go higher. I would say this is the best child performance I've ever seen. Have I seen them all? No. But in my opinion, this is the favorite. This is the best one that I have seen. And I just wish somewhere would have thrown him a bone along the line. Obviously, I knew this was never going to happen at the Oscars. They don't really like child performances. They don't really like international child performances. But Eden is amazing and close. This movie's actually going into release as we speak now. So hopefully it will come out to your city shortly and you can just see how powerful this movie is and how amazing Eden is in this role. Mm-hmm. As we mentioned, we both had the same pick here, so we're just going to do a quick little you know, shout-out to some other people. You mentioned child performances. You mentioned Steven Spielberg. I want to give a shout-out to Gabriel LaBelle. Same mind. Same mind there. Gabriel wow. LaBelle. I wish he could have gotten nominated at the Oscars. That would have been such a great Oscar. Be like, 
because the Oscars always do these coattail nominations. Like, oh, we love this movie. We're going to lump in, like, this actor or mm-hmm. this other, like, award with it. And I just wish Gabriel Lobel could have been that with the Fablemans this year. That's enough best lead actor. Let's move on to the highly contested category, the one that everyone is talking about right now, best lead actress. And let's just start off by saying that this is a really tough category uh, to talk about mostly just because it's not that anyone here is not deserving. It's not that anyone was more deserving. It's just that politics often gets in the way of not of rewarding the right performances because there's no right performances but politics comes into play and that's why there were some snubs here that people are very rightfully so upset about um but let's let's focus on the positive we've got Kate Blanchett in Tar we've got Anna Diarmas in Blonde we've got Andrea Riseborough in To Leslie we have Michelle Williams in The Fablemans we have Michelle Yeoh and Everything Ever All at Once. This is a great lineup. Um, but if you were to add one more, who would you add? As Matt mentioned, this is a very competitive category. I had a short list of three people I wanted here. One is from a movie I really want to nominate elsewhere. One is from a movie I don't really know if I want to nominate anywhere else. However, the one from the movie I want to nominate elsewhere is just by far my favorite lead actress performance. So it would feel disingenuous for me not to pick them here. And you mentioned Bone Chilling. Well, how about some bones and all? Taylor Russell delivers mm. a career high uh, from her and delivers one. She, I know she's not a child, but she is a younger actress. And uh, this, to me, is her defining role. Even though I loved her in Waves, I got her onto the scene. This is the role that people will look at years from now and be like, this is the role that made her into a star. Yeah. I just can't wait to see what she gets casted in next. She's able to communicate so much as Marin just through her eyes, through nonverbals, which for me is a very rewarding thing from an actor or an actress. As we mentioned with Eden and Close, he's able to communicate so much without verbally speaking. And Taylor Russell does the same here. And then when she does speak, there's so much power and there's so much weight to her performance. It's just when I love, I would shower with all the awards, let alone just getting nominated. This would be my winner in the category overall for the year. But how about you? It would have to be Tang Wei in Decision to Leave. Um, she is amazing in this film. I, I spoke so much this year about what Janelle Monet does in Glass Onion is very exceptional because they're playing multiple characters uh, and they're mm-hmm. playing a character pretending to be someone else. I would actually say that I think Tang Wei does that even better in Decision to Leave. I agree. Uh, with the, the duplicity of this character, the layers of playing multiple, not multiple people, but just multiple personas in one. The the secrets that are being hidden, the things that go unsaid, this is a masterful performance. So that moves us over to Supporting Actor, where we have our double Banshee boy showing up again, Brennan Gleeson and Barry Keegan. We have Judd Hirsch getting, you could say, a surprise nomination for The Fablements. Brian Tyree Henry getting the real surprise nomination here for Causeway. And who I think is our personal winner for each of us for the year in this category, Kihi Kwan and yeah. everything everywhere all at once. But we just mentioned our lead actress people. And I said, Bones and All with Taylor Russell is a movie I want to nominate everywhere. This is a category where I would love to nominate for for Mark Rylance. He, he's brilliant. He's amazing. He would be my runner up in this category for the year. But I've already used Bones and All. So I want to give a shout out to another movie. And this is a movie I honestly don't love. It's a movie that would be... My, Honestly, my bottom of my best picture lineup from the 10 that made it in. But Zlaco Burke and Triangle of Sadness 
is amazing. He knows what he needs to be in this role. He delivers. He has, honestly, in my opinion, the best line reading of the year with the I sell shit bit on the boat. And I just would love for as much love Triangle's been getting from various bodies, whether it is the Oscars or the Baptist, that he could have came along someplace with it. Let's take it back to close. I told you I'd be nominating multiple people from a few films, and I have to give a shout-out to Gustave de Whale uh, in Close, who plays the best friend of Eden Dambreen's character, gives an equally excellent performance. Doesn't have as much screen time for reasons I won't go into, um, but every moment that he has on screen is so captivating, is so heartfelt and melancholic and beautiful. The work that these two do together on screen, I... I I, I'm just blown away. I have no idea how they got these two. I, I'll just echo what I said for Eden Dambreen. Yeah. How the hell did they get two child performers to act this well? But let's get into this next mm-hmm. category, supporting actress. I love this lineup. I love this Me lineup. Too. I love that we can fit Stephanie Hsu in here. We also have Jamie Lee Curtis, also for Everything Ever All at Once, Carrie Condon for The Banshees of Inishirin, Hong Chow for The Whale, and Angela Bassett for Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. So if you could add, I think I know what your answer is here. Yeah. I've already mentioned them. So who would your number six be? My number six would be, like you said, who you just mentioned before, Janelle Monet, who delivers everything you just said about Tang Wei and Decision to Leave here in Glass Onion. Uh, I love what they're able to do with this role, playing... I feel like this movie's been out enough, so you can say this. They're playing two roles, and they're doing them masterfully. And there's always, like, when you watch a movie, like, oh, there's a big twist. There's a person that, who's not what you see. You go back and rewatch it, and this still holds up on a rewatch. It's not like, oh, you can see through the cracks, you can see through the holes, like, oh, this is when they're one person, this is when they're the other person. Like, no, you can really tell they're one person committed to playing another person. This is really tricky because... I think that all the women in this film deliver exceptional work, and I don't. It feels wrong to shout out one of them over everyone else. Um, but I have to give a shout out specifically to Claire Foy in Women Talking here. Although, truly, you could swap this answer out for anyone in the cast of Women Talking, and that would be my answer. Uh, not just Claire Foy, but Jesse Buckley, Judith Ivey, Sheila McCarthy, Rooney Mara, uh, Michelle McLeod, all give such beautiful exceptional, lived-in, very subtle performances. But the reason why I'm just going to mention Claire Foy in specific is is the scene that you see in the trailers. The the monologue scene, the scene where uh, she says, we know that we have been bruised and hurt, and some of us are dead. It takes a really strong actor to deliver a monologue like that and not overblow it. And not mm-hmm. uh, do too much, but at the same time, not do too little. Shout out to every single woman in that cast. It is such a strong ensemble. And the reason why I think we don't see anyone from women talking here is because everyone's going to come out of that movie with someone who made an impression on them. And every one of those women made an impression on me. But I'm just going to give a shout out to that monologue from Claire Foy. No, I think you hit the nail on the head right there. This cast, this ensemble is so good. And everyone has someone different. Because I remember when you saw that TIFF, I saw it Virginia. And some other people that we know all saw it. And we asked, hey, who is your favorite? And I think we all gave a different answer for the most part. And I was like, wow, this is the true definition of an ensemble award. Yeah. And I know we all love everything everywhere else is ensemble. But hey, SAG, please, Women Talking, redeem no. it right here. Women Talking would be an incredibly deserving ensemble winner. 
Uh, and although Everything Ever All at Once needs that to get to Best Picture, I would be over the moon. I'd be over the moon mm-hmm. to see Women Talking take it. But let's get to Adapted Screenplay. The nominees we have in this this category are All Quiet on the Western Front, Glass Onion, Living, Top Gun Maverick, and Women Talking. And I gotta say, this is a category that was pretty highly contested for a while. We didn't fully know where this was going. But I think this lineup is one of the better lineups we could have had in this category. Yeah, I, I agree with that as well. And I guess in retrospect, it wasn't really that up in the air once you saw what happened. Some other categories like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. All Quiet's here. Got in picture. Maverick's here. It's in picture. Women Talking made picture. Glass Onion, the first one got in and Living makes sense. They respect the writer. The Whale missed. That should miss here, too. So, like, it all makes sense in retrospect. Uh, I guess my shout out here would be the other move that was somewhat in contention because I really love this script. Uh, and that's for She Said. And you and I had our reservations about this movie before we saw it based off of the trailer. Like, okay, is this just going to be Hollywood patting themselves on the back? Like, hey, we caught the one bad guy and we're good from here. And guess what? This movie was not that. For me, it was up there with Spotlight in terms of investigative journalism. As a journalism major in college uh, who got my degree in that type of field, I just loved and respected how true to like real life it was. It wasn't. I just loved and respect how well and how appreciative it was written to not be exploitive or taking advantage of any certain thing that we feared with this movie and some other movies that came out this year dealing with some very heavy topics and at the end of the day i am sad that it missed but as you mentioned this is a great lineup and that's why we have this show here to give a quick shout out to she said i'll break the rules right here i'm gonna give two guillermo del toro's pinocchio and the batman both for the same reason and the reason for both of these is that i think that they both take mythologies and stories that we're very familiar with as an audience i mean how many goddamn batman reboots are there how many goddamn pinocchio reboots that are there there were three pinocchios this past year we know these stories and the thing that both of these films do incredibly well is they reinvent the stories for a new audience and with a new vision just as Pinocchio is titled Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, you could just as easily call it Matt Reeves' The Batman. And it's because it's a distinct vision. In Pinocchio, it's not just the the familiar Disney version of the story. It's a story of fascism and how easy it can be to be corrupted um, and, and what it means to be good in the world. Meanwhile, The Batman, you have uh, the a superhero movie turned into a neo-noir with all of these familiar characters that have been twisted into different, like uh, the the Riddler becoming an online forum poster uh, incel type. The creative license taken with this, I think, is what makes the Batman a worthwhile reboot to the story. Otherwise, I think we'd be sitting here being like, why did they make another one? Yeah, it looks cool, but why did they make another one? The screenplay mm-hmm. is what makes the difference. It really does. So those two, I want to give shout outs to because they truly take in the spirit of adapted screenplay. They adapt the source material and make something brand new. Original screenplay is a category that we all kind of saw coming what the five would be, and that was Banshees. Everything ever all at once, The Fablemans, Tar, and Triangle of Sadness quick and easy and my addition here is a quick and easy one as well cha-cha real smooth not much to say other than i really enjoy this movie i really enjoyed its writing and i basically have lived the main character's life for a little portion so i really resonated and connected with uh this script there's not much else for me to add other than i really like the script here yeah so you were djing at bar mitzvahs basically yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna give my shout to 
a comedy that I think was, like Cha-Cha Real Smooth, way too quickly forgotten. This one seemed to be forgotten even when it was in theaters, which was such a shame because it's Mm -hmm. a refreshing and hilarious comedy that truly was up there with some of the best of Judd Apatow's output. And it's bros for me. It just clicked perfectly. Um, I, I was laughing my ass off the entire time. And that says something for the success of a comedy. I would have loved to see this film get into this category. It's every ounce as deserving as Bridesmaids was 10 years ago. 11 years I ago. I agree. All that being said, let's move on to our next best cinematography. Our nominees we've got here, all quiet on the Western Front, Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths, Elvis, Empire of Light, and Tar. So if you could add one to this category, what would you do? And just to say, there are a lot of great, great looking films this year that we have to draw from. There are. I could take the easy way out and say, hey, where's your winner here of Top Gun Maverick? But I'm not going to do that because I don't have to hope predict this movie in another category because the Oscars, they redeemed me. They put this in the international, so I can give it a shout out here in cinematography, and that is EO. We've talked about this movie a ton here on the show, so I don't really want to go all that back into it. But EO, if you haven't seen it, it's rolling on the theaters now. Watch it. Go in blind. Don't really know much about it, and just let it take you away. But just know this. The cinematography is honestly one of the best of the year with how inspired this branch is usually. I was kind of hoping maybe. I got to go with Athena. Athena, uh, this is a movie where when I was watching this on Netflix, I kept pausing to pick my jaw up off the floor and go, how the hell did they do this? How the hell did they pull that off? And the answer is, I still have no idea. I don't know how they pulled it off. It's long take after long take, just explosions and crowds and traveling long distances. How they did this film, I don't know. I still need to watch it, but every time I hear people talk about it, I'm just like, I need to see this because I am a big sucker for some one-take movies, and it sounds like Athena has those in it. It's great. But what I'm also a sucker for is my pick for documentary feature. But first, I want to say what the Oscars nominated, and that's All That Breathes, All the Beat in the Bloodshed, Fire of Love, A House Made of Splinters, and Navalny. But, but Oscars, Oscars, come on. Where's Jackass Forever? I forgot which critics branch did it. One critics branch, like regional one, they nominated this. I'm like, yes, thank you. Someone who recognized that the Jackass movies are documentaries. They're just a group of guys going to do dumb stuff. My shout out for documentary here would be Users, which was a, a very low scene film. It has 78 votes on IMDb. It reminds me a lot of visual mosaic documentaries like Samsara or Koyaanisqatsugi. It is so beautifully shot, some of the best cinematography of the year, um, and it deserves so much more praise than it got. It won the directing prize at the Sundance Film Festival in 2021, and it released this year to barely more than a whimper, but it is such a beautiful film, and I highly recommend tracking it down because it's amazing. But let's check out film editing. We've got The Banshees of Inishirin, Elvis, Everything Ever All at Once, Tar, and Top Gun Maverick. If you could add one in this category, what would you add? So this is not going to make sense, but promise it will. Hear me out. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. This movie is so stylized. It's so it's so quick and speedy. Like You don't feel this runtime at all. It's like an hour 40, and it feels like it's under an hour. You get in, you get out. There's so many like multi-shot 
angles, like kind of like what Elvis does, but in a more concise package. And I don't know, uh, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish is a very out there type film editing nomination, but I'm always for those out there ones like Lasho and The Bachelors and Summer of Soul. Great editing nomination. Mm-hmm. And this lineup here is already great. Elvis, everything ever all at once, Top Gun Maverick, they're in my personal lineups. And Puss in Boots is not in my own personal lineup, but it's the one I just want to give a shout out for because the screenplay here, the voice acting, and especially the editing is what makes this movie so lovable and i think why so many people out there are really clamoring up behind this movie to be like hey this animated movie is for real i have to say women talking and the reason i'm going to say women talking for editing is because of how much this film was shaped in the edit room how much our relationships with these characters comes from the edit how even though we don't really get to know these characters outside of this loft the editing makes sure that we feel by the end of the film, as though we know them all. Even though, put together, each of them, like, each of these characters must only have five to ten minutes worth of dialogue. Just the way that this film uses reaction shots, the way that this film cuts around to show us everything that's happening in this room is truly beautiful. So, our next category we're going to talk about, international feature. So... We'll both try and talk about films that were submitted, but I will mention RRR right off the bat as one as that was should. not submitted. But for films that were submitted, Germany's All Quiet on the Western Front, Argentina's Argentina 1985, Belgium, Close, Poland, EO, and Ireland, The Quiet Girl. So if you could nominate one country's film that submitted, what would it be? It would be Mexico with Bardo. Ah, I didn't Alejandro see that one Gonzalez is... <laughs> Inarito's state of mind worked for me. I fully get why people don't rock with this movie, why they don't like this movie. But hey, you have to admit this. Even if you don't like the screenplay, you have to admit the visuals are great. You have to mention the acting is great. And you have to mention, and I would even say, the score is great. It's so innovative and it's so out there and it's so different. Kind of like EOs as well. They both are very different type of scores for the movies that they're actually for. And they very much, I think, work for them. So for me, the film that I am going to shout out is Denmark's submission, Holy Spider. This is, I think, the movie that David Fincher wishes he made. It's not an easy watch, but I think it's an important film to watch. Our next category, Best Original Song. We've got Applause from Tell It Like a Woman, Hold My Hand by Lady Gaga from Top Gun Maverick, Lift Me Up by Rihanna from Black Panther Wakanda Forever, Natu Natu from RRR, This Is a Life by Mitski and David Byrne, from everything everywhere all at once so let's uh let's hit it what what are your picks i i think you're gonna cheat again on this one yeah i'm cheating because uh this is not a knock on any of the nominees but the song category is always my least favorite at the oscars uh they are at least to me very uninspired they just kind of go with what you kind of expect them to go with they go with diane warren they go with uh the best picture nominees and credit songs so on and so forth so both of my suggestions here are stuff that's not even made the shortlist because why would they make the shortlist? Uh, I don't have much to say about either of these besides they're both bops. So the first one's just a bop, and that's uh, Doja Cat's Vegas from Elvis. Uh, it, it got disqualified for a dumb reason. I don't think sampling a song should disqualify you. Like I would get of like the whole song was like Elvis singing or uh, previous versions of the song, but it's just a sample for the hook. and. Doja Cat adds stuff throughout the thing. I don't know if you can see behind me. There's an autographed Doja vinyl there. So oh, cool. big Doja Cat fan here. And the other one I want to shout out is my double cheat because I said I'm only going to mention each movie once, but Bones and All, You Make Me Feel Like Home. 
This is by far the best song from a movie this year. Its place in the film adds so much heart, adds so much merit, adds so much emotional weight. Um, this is one you can very much listen to on your own as well, which I think is a very important thing with this category because obviously the song should be impactful in the scene that you see it from, but it should also be able to work outside of the movie. And I feel like both of these songs, maybe not so much Vegas inside the movie, but both of these songs really work outside of the movie. But I cheated there, so I feel like you should be allowed to cheat as well. So the way I'm going to cheat, I'll say one that was eligible, and then I'll say one from a film that was not eligible at all. Um, so my one that was eligible was Love Is Not Love from Bros. What a great song. What an emotional finale mm-hmm. to that movie. Such a lovely, lovely moment. And one when I saw it at TIFF, I was like, oh, this is getting nominated. It's not, it's, it wasn't even shortlisted. But what a great song. Totally deserves the mention. I'm going to have to go with a song from Bo Burnham's Inside Outtakes, which was The Chicken. Um, Bo Burnham sang a song in that movie, which was basically an extended Why Did the Chicken Cross the Road joke. And it is genuinely one of the most beautiful songs of the year. Not eligible because Bo Burnham's inside outtakes. Not only is this a song that was an outtake from his movie from last year, but this is also a a YouTube video that was... (laughs) We have no limits here. We can nominate whatever we want because no one is stopping us. In fact, that brings us to production design, where our nominees were All Quiet in the Western Front, Avatar The Way of Water, Babylon, Elvis, and the Fablements, I think a pretty solid bunch. However, because no one can stop me, I can do whatever I want. I want the <laughs> Northman. Uh, this movie overall, not a really big fan of it, but its production design is great. When you have one-take movies, you need to build big sets. The Northman has a lot of intense, deep, long one-takes, and to make those be able to pull off, you need first great actors, great cinematography, but you also need impressive production design. I That's the one thing about Robert Eggers' movies. You can say whatever you want about their quality, of their good movies, but they're always faithful to the times. They always have a lot of technical craft put into them, and The Northman is no exception. If I have to give a production design nomination here, it's Glass Onion. Hands down. Hands. This is mm-hmm. my winner in the category. Glass Onion does such an incredible job with its production design, with just building not just an entire island that a billionaire would live in, but building the character of Miles into the island and into the tasteless design. The fact that the Mona Lisa is sitting beside a Rothko, which is hung upside down. Um, There's so many great little shouts in here, so many great little decisions that really, really show that the production designers were in the mind of the characters designing this house. That brings us to Best Visual Effects, where the Oscars nominated All Quiet the Western Front, Avatar The Way of Water, The Batman, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, and Top Gun Maverick. There's one movie who I would put in contention to win of Avatar wasn't here, but I'm not using that as my suggestion, and that's nope, because I'm saying that for another category where I feel like it is much more deserved. So I want to give a shout out actually to the Oscars and to them making shortlists because before they made a shortlist, I didn't really know this movie had much visual effects. I thought it was all practical. But that is a shout out to 13 Lives because I saw a little before and after video. I read what they did and it's amazing how lifelike it all looks. Like when you watch that movie, you're like, oh, this is obviously like a set. They're not like they made this. Like, no, it's visuals. Like, and it's just, I don't, I can't even put into words. Like, I'm fumbling my words just for how impressive the visual effects work was for the 13 lives. I think the VFX line that we got was very good. I just really wish from the shortlist that this could have found its way to sneak in because it's so impressive and from a movie that otherwise is pretty much completely ignored across the board. The visual effects category, the one flaw 
of this category is that they always go for the biggest films with the most money behind them. When this year we had a little scrappy film with tons of visual effects being everything ever all at once, with such a great narrative that this was done by a team of seven on After Effects, just on their little computers, and now it's on the biggest multiplexes in the world. Everything Ever All at Once is so creative in its use of visual effects, and ultimately that's what I wish that we got to see uh, in this category more of. Not just what are the most polished visual effects, but what is the most creative use of visual effects. But speaking of creativity, that brings us to Animated Feature, which I think we have a very creative lineup including Pinocchio, Marcel the Shell, Puss in Boots, The Sea Beast, and Turning Red. My shout-out here, pretty quick and easy getting out. I think it's another very creative movie. I know it's one that you don't really like the most, but that's The Bad Guys, DreamWorks, other big movie that came out this year. I just love how stylized this is. It feels like it's taking inspiration from a lot of the crime, dramas, actions, comedies that we know from the past, but making it into a more accessible kids format. And I just thought it was a great time. Is this a movie I'm going to sit back like a Pinocchio or Puss in Boots and think about for a long time? No, but it's one I had a lot of fun while watching. And it's it, like one of the perfect examples of I need an escapist movie. A movie like The Bad Guys would be one of the first ones I would want to run to. So I'll give two answers here. If I'm cheating on this category, I'm going to say Chippendale Rescue Rangers, which is an animated live-action hybrid. Uh, but I'm not going to fully cheat today. That's my answer if cheating, and Little Nicholas, happy as can be, is my answer if not cheating. I've talked about this movie so much on the show. Um, it is basically, think of Parisian Charlie Brown, and that's what you get. It nice. is the Peanuts, but set in France in the 1950s. It is so beautiful. It is just incredibly heartfelt, very sincere, very earnest. I am certain if this were 2013 and it was still just the animation branch voting, this would have gotten a nomination. But now we live in times where anyone can vote in this category, which means we get some less inspired nominations overall. But ultimately, Little Nicholas deserves a watch um, anytime you can find it. But let's move on to costume design. We have Babylon, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, Elvis, Everything Ever All at Once, and Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. Uh, this is a movie, for my personal predictions, I was saying it was going to massively underperform. I had to just get into one category. I had it missing this category, but it was so deserving of a nomination, and I wish it would have gotten it, and that would be The Woman King. I love the costumes here. They're very inspired costumes. They do a lot of work with them, and I, I know I'm not saying much here because I don't feel like there's much to say. Just it's watch good. the movie. Google some photos. Look at them. They look great. I'll take your role of Batman Stan here and say there the Batman go. absolutely deserved a costume design nomination. Uh, just the way that I talked earlier about in adapted screenplay, how they adapted these characters, how they adapted the situation that we know. They did the same with the costumes. Every costume looks different uh, and, and unique and uh, new. The Riddler being this green jacket and mask. Um, the, the Penguin being in this suit and fantastic prosthetics. Uh, even Catwoman, it's not that skin-tight suit we all know. It's it's different. And and Batman's suit, not looking like a billion-dollar project, but just kind of like someone threw something together. Um, the costumes in here look so DIY. They look so real. And it's what grounds the film and makes it believable that this could happen in our world. That leads us into the best makeup and hairstyling category. Arquan the Western Front, The Batman, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Elvis, and The Whale were the nominees. I think that's a pretty great lineup. But I'm using a movie that I would describe as a horror. People probably want it. People would say, this movie's awful. This movie deserves nothing. 
I'm on the boat. This movie deserved actress, and it deserves makeup and hairstyling, and that is blonde. Uh, what they're able to do with not just Ana de Armas, but various people in this movie, uh, fitting them into the time period, making them look photorealistic, I thought was very impressive. Uh, like, there's specific shots and stills you could take from Blonde and compare, like, just post them on Twitter, and people would probably say, like, hey, that's Marilyn Monroe. That's not Ana de Armas. And to me, that's just a sign of very impressive makeup and hairstyling. Crimes of the Future is my pick right here. Two words. Ear man. You got a dude with a bunch of ears all over him. And and not just that. Cool I mean, guy. David Cronenberg always does so much in his body horror films with creating new visions, with creating new ways that the flesh can can mold and shape. And in this film, I think it's it's a magnum opus for makeup and hairstyling in, in his films. But let's get into original score. So in original score nominated, we have All Quiet on the Western Front, Babylon, The Banshees of Inishirin, Everything Ever All at Once, and The Fablemans. Now, there's some notable snubs in this category, so I'll just say mine right off the bat because they were the two ones that were expected and didn't get in. Women Talking and Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. How do you not nominate those? I don't know. Women Talking in particular, I listened to that score after it got snubbed just walking around, and it is incredible. Um, and I, I get emotional just hearing the music. So, But I'll, I'll open the floor to you. What's your shout-out here? You just talked about Crimes of the Future of how that movie lives and dies with its makeup i agree but it's elevated by its score its yeah. score adds so much extra weight so much extra punch to those scenes where yes you're seeing this these visuals i don't want to say these horror visuals because sometimes they're not horror they're romantic and crimes of the future but they are made that way by the score that's underlying these performances from vigo from christian stewart this is a score i can listen to just in my free time as you mentioned about women talking just walking around i can go on drives or go on runs listen to this crimes of the future score it just gets me going so best sound all quiet on the western front avatar the way of water the batman elvis top gun maverick what is your number six so we've gone through like four categories in a row that i could have picked nope but this is the category i was saving nope for the sound design of nope is immaculate it Regardless of the visuals, regardless of the acting, the tone, the screenplay, it like you say, Crimes of the Future lives and dies on its makeup. Nope, lives or dies on its sound. Because you could close your eyes without even having visuals. You can hear the sound and just envision the horror. This is the one that hurt me most for Nope. Um, Nope's a movie I love. Uh, it's Like I mentioned with Bardo, I think it's going to have a revisionist history. I know Nope is a very widely liked film, but there's not many people saying, like, oh, this is movie of the year type of thing. And I feel like in a few years, people are like, why don't we give Nope more love? I'm going to shout out Everything Ever All at Once here, mostly because it uses sound in such a creative way. Um, I, I keep coming back to this with Everything Everywhere. It's not that it executes it flawlessly. It's that it's creative in design. Just the breadth of sound effects that they use. They use the Super Smash Bros. like KO sound uh, multiple times through the film. The, the sound effects, the variety of sound effects where they're pulling from is so creative so vibrant and it's what gives the film that sort of adult swim um cartoon network energy that it has and with that i think we've finished every category we have a discussion to have because what is going on in best actress we got our nominations last tuesday and to me pretty solid lineup i mean we have kate blanchett michelle yo most people's number one or number two I was a big fan of Ana de Armas and Blonde. I know that's a controversial take, but Michelle Williams in The Fablemans, uh, very beloved movie role, yeah. And then we had a surprise at the fifth slot because I was predicting a Davis snub for uh, for Woman King, but I was also predicting Daniel Dedewile to get in for Till because I just love that performance and it's so impactful. But neither of them got in. Andrea Riseborough 
surprise us all with two Leslie. But in retrospect, was it really a surprise? All the pieces were there. If you saw our reaction video, we both flipped out. Like, what is going on? And Matt, you've had some days to think about it. Yeah. What are your overall thoughts now a few days later? So let's unpack this. I think in order to really get into what happened, we have to talk about what happened. So mm -hmm. To Leslie is a film that premiered at South by Southwest uh, to rave reviews. It's from a very small distributor, Momentum Films. The film was released in October, again, to rave reviews. This is a film I first heard about because it had like an 85, 86 on Metacritic, and I was like, wow, that's something to take note of. But you know what? I, I'm not too captured by this. Maybe I'll watch it eventually. I added it to my watch list, didn't think too much of it. And then Andrea Riseborough got the Indie Spirit nomination. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I started seeing comments being like, wow, Andrea Riseborough, don't overlook her. She's amazing in this film. Go and watch Two Leslie if you get a chance. That's where I first really heard about it. And I moved the film on my watch list from my bottom tier of watch it when you get a chance to, huh, you, you should probably watch this. So I downloaded the film and, and I have I still haven't seen the movie. I'm going to watch it tomorrow. I'm going to watch it tomorrow and I will come back and tell you all my reaction <laughs> to it. Me too. I didn't th take it seriously as an Oscar thing until about two weeks ago when the the thing started happening, the thing that you all know about where everyone started posting on social media to Leslie is a small film with a giant heart with one of the best performances of all time. It seems like Kate and Michelle and Danielle and Viola all have their spots secured. Make sure you go and vote for Andrea Riseborough. Um, that's where the controversy starts, is that you've got a bunch of actors copy and pasting the same thing. Were they paid to do this? Was it some weird organic grassroots campaign? Was Andrea Riseborough blackmailing everyone? No, she was not. No, she was not. I assure you of that. But ultimately, uh, the controversy all comes from how is it that in two weeks, on because it started on the day that Oscar voting opened up, and it continued mm -hmm. through the week that it was open. So how did we go from no one knowing what Two Leslie was to suddenly being an Oscar nominee? In, in two weeks. And the questions I have to ask here are um, less about does Andrew Riseborough deserve it and more what are the implications on the Oscar race going forward? I see this as two ways. I know everyone out there has their own personal opinions, whether it's through a, a personal connection to one of these performances or just as an outsider looking in. But looking at this, there's two things to take from it. Either one, campaigning has changed for forever. The two Leslie campaigner, I don't know who it was, but they found the glitch in the matrix essentially they found out how you get a nomination with no money with no real campaign with no big big funding behind you they just knew how to get in whether that was contacting these stars individually because it wasn't like they were contacting directors or screenwriters solely it was actors and as matt mentioned it was kind of a copy and paste of the same thing so like they were clearly being given something uh so either that person was doing a very good job or on the flip side they were doing a really good job by breaking the rules, by giving them some money or saying, hey, I got you next time or something along those yeah. lines. So it's, it's either the greatest campaigner of history or someone who really bent the rules. I don't know if this is an individual person or a group. I'm just using that as like a, a blanket term without knowing the individual specifics. But that's how I read it, essentially. It's either this changes campaign for forever next year 
we have another one. Uh, or this is as we've seen the Oscars are going to review this and could be seen like, hey, they broke the rules. Guess what? Can't do this. So don't even think about it come next year because you and I mentioned on the show and I think through the Discord where if you were kind of in the scene, we're like, hey, we've heard about this movie, but like nothing's going on and the conversation is happening now once the voting has opened. But is it too late? Because most people submit day one. But those people who didn't submit day one they see these stars they know, they love, post, and like, oh, they think it, maybe I should watch it. Maybe they've already seen it, and like, okay, time to move this performance up a little bit, because guess what? I'm not alone in loving this performance. First off, will this change voting forever? I don't think so. I don't think this is going to change campaigning, because here's the thing. If everyone was doing this, it would be the same as no one doing it. The reason why Risebro really drew attention is because no one else was doing this. No one else was calling all their famous friends to uh, to post for them. Uh, no one did that. If people were posting like that about 10 different nominees, then none of them would get the traction. The reason it worked is mm -hmm. because Andrea Riseborough was the only one who took that specific tactic. And it caught, uh, it caught hold because everyone was talking about it. Ultimately, if everyone does that, it's totally the same as no one doing it because no one will gain traction because instead of having ed norton kate blanchett uh amy adams so on so forth celebrities posting about it um if you had each celebrity posting about someone different then no one catches on no one at all catches on in snubbing the two black actresses in this category danielle deadweiler and viola davis this demonstrates that there is a lot of whiteness that is upheld in this organization. And it's not saying that people who voted for Riseborough were specifically trying to make a racist action, nor do I believe that it fully was uh, a racist action at all. I, I don't think that at all. I think that Andrea Riseborough had a great performance, but ultimately you see the impact of white privilege running through this, which is that just look at the connections that Andrea Riseborough has as a, a zero time nominee. How many films has she been in with other actors who have immense status? Um, pretty much all the people that she posted about. But let me, I'm just going to pull up her IMDb page and let's look at some of the movie stars that she is friends with. She was in Amsterdam alongside Christian Bale, Margot Robbie, John David Washington, Rami Malek, Anya Taylor-Joy. She was in The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne alongside Benedict Cumberbatch. Um... Even back to Mandy, Nicolas Cage, The Death of Stalin with so many actors, Battle of the Sexes with Steve Carell, Emma Stone, um, Nocturnal Animals, Amy Adams, Jake Gyllenhaal, Aaron Taylor Johnson, uh, Birdman, Michael Keaton, Emma Stone, um, oh my god, Edward Norton, so many big names, Zach Galifianakis, Naomi Watts, all these big names. Needless to say, um, Andrea Riseborough has a ton of famous friends, has connections, and has those kind of uh, inroads to the Academy. So, Daniel Deadweiler. Who has Daniel Deadweiler worked with in Hollywood that could impact uh, a nomination? Uh, and the answer to that is basically just Regina King um, in Watchmen. And... Ultimately, that just comes down to Daniel Dadweiler doesn't have the connections to do something like this. 
And when people are like, I'm going to vote for my friend, they're going to vote for their friend. And oftentimes that friend who they're going to be voting for, that's impacted by the system of Hollywood upholding a lot of white privilege. Uh, so ultimately, was it a racist decision to nominate Andrea Riseborough over these two black actresses? I don't think so. However, you can't deny that there is not white privilege that went into that series of events. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree with a lot of what you said there. I guess looking at it from another angle, not discrediting or not disagreeing with anything you said, just looking at it more from a campaign type angle from a very much invested lover of the Oscar season. I mentioned on this show many times, Woman King's a movie I would love to see do well across the board. Picture, mm -hmm. director, actress, costumes, this, that. But Sony really didn't campaign this movie. No. Like, yeah, Viola Davis did Actors on Actors and Gina Prince-Bialowicz was out there a little bit, but there wasn't huge industry screens for this movie like some other movies had. Like, this was Sony's only real movie. You'd feel like, hey, let's get people in the room. Like, you mentioned Kate Blanchett, Tar. Tar had a lot of big movies. A lot of big movies uh, premieres with people, like the one Scorsese does that, where he's like raving about the movie. I didn't see any of that for Woman King. And mm -hmm. I mean, if they did do one and I just didn't see it, I guess it wasn't that big because we didn't see many posts or many stuff about it. Then for Till, uh, you mentioned many times how much you love Woman Talking, and we saw how much Woman Talking struggled this season due to its subject matter. And Till definitely suffered from that as well. I helped set up a community screening of Till um, in the area where I live at, and we had a very hard time finding people to want to go to this movie because uh, various people from different backgrounds said, hey, this is a story about people from our past that we just do not want to see because it's going to be exploitative. It's going to be yeah. taking advantage. It's going to be overtly sad. It's going to be negative. And I love this movie. Dead Weiler would be my second or third on my rank of best actresses from every movie not just oscar contained movies she's amazing in this movie i love her performance it's so powerful it's so moving but clearly this is something that people just didn't really want to see and that's not to take away from dead while it's not to take away from davis but these are both performances that did not have a huge campaign behind them like yeah viola davis hit most precursors but also they were clear signs for that this is going to struggle at the oscars it was a september movie september movies very much struggle at the Oscars. Sony wasn't really putting much weight behind this. It was on the downward trajectory in a lot of categories. I was just predicting it for just one nomination. Ended up getting blanked. And then for Deadweiler, she missed some major stuff on the path. She missed Golden Globe, which was major. She did get in at SAG. She got in at BAFTA. Very good for her. But as I mentioned before, this movie was having very bad visibility issues. Not to mention MGM UA. They've been pretty bad at campaigning recently. We saw Women Talking, a movie that most people had at number one, two, or three all season only end up getting two nominations at the Oscars for Adapted Screenplay and Best Picture. So both these actors had, had big showy roles that a lot of people were expecting to get in, but there were signs for it to miss and not discrediting them or anything like that. The, the vision was there. It's not like these were like the number one and two and they just got left off. That's just the point I want to bring up for the campaigning because it does look very bad that yeah. the two black actresses miss in favor for a white actress. So I'm not here saying like, oh, they deserve to miss or they should have made it or anything like that. I'm just looking at like the bigger picture being, like, hey, we have these prior details. Let's bring this in because as you mentioned before, Danielle Deadweiler can't go out there and do this. Viola Davis, she probably could, Viola but why Davis would could. she? But, She's a big enough actress. Yeah. She shouldn't. Ha you shouldn't have to do that. And Overall, this just reads to like the two Leslie team, as I mentioned before. They either really know what they're doing or they broke the rules. That's how it looks yeah. to me. I don't think this is a sign of we're just snubbing the black actresses to put in this white actress. Because in this category, we have our first 
Asian lead to be nominated, and then we have Ana Diarmas, who is a not a white person. So we do have some diversity here. So it's not like, oh, we're only voting white people. But at the same time, I do hear the concerns, do hear the woes about, mm-hmm. hey, Davis missed, Deadweiler missed, and this movie that not many people have heard about got in. One thing I'll say is that ultimately, yes, Viola Davis could have done that because Viola Davis does have a ton of friends in Hollywood. The list I read mm-hmm. for Riseboro would be twice as long for Viola Davis. But the point that I want to make in terms of whiteness in the Academy is is not that Viola Davis could not have done that. It's that there are only four black women that have ever been nominated twice for an Oscar. Um, mm-hmm. So when we talk about a list of people with famous friends that can make an impact, um, there are so many more white nominees at the Oscars than there are um, black nominees. And and frankly, yeah. there are a lot of totally films. Agree. There are a lot of films that still treat uh, black actors as tokens in, in the films, which means that a lot of uh, incredible performers get looked over. And so ultimately, when we see something like this, you need to keep in mind that someone like Daniel Deadweiler, uh, no matter how amazing the performance is, a lot of these voters vote for their friends. We see that over and over with Diane Warren, and someone like Daniel Deadweiler does not have the connections in the industry yet in order to get that. Um, and a lot of that is is mostly just, it's, it's due to white privilege. Um, mm-hmm. So with that being said, did they break the rules? And I don't know specifically what they did, but what I do know is what has happened in the past. So in 1996, the film Shine, uh, which stars Jeffrey Rush, and which I would say is not a good film, it was nominated for Best Picture, it won Best Actor, and something that they did is they hired, uh, they hired political campaigners, and they had these campaigners make literal house calls to people. They had them call up the voter list of Oscar voters and go, hi there, have you decided who you're voting for yet? Well, make sure that you keep in mind Shine, starring Jeffrey Rush. So they did that. After that, the Oscars banned this type of of campaigning, which is specifically targeting voters and and saying to them, hey, you need to vote for this film. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, Which I'm going to say, I don't see much of a difference between that and Diane Warren sending out like fancy sheet music that's signed by her being like, Hey, vote for me. Um, I don't see much of a difference between that and Nomadland sending out a bunch of food to people uh, and being like, Hey, vote for us. Um, but they made the rule and it's, it's pushed a lot all over the place. And then after that, um, more rules were put in place, um, after the Weinstein campaign for Shakespeare in Love uh, in which a large part of the Shakespeare in Love campaign was putting down Saving Private Ryan, was talking about how you can't vote for the other films, vote for this instead. Um, and so now there's a rule that when you're campaigning for a film, you cannot, um, you can't put down the other films. Uh, people do it anyways, but they do it through very subtle tactics, very s- smear tactics. They plant stories in, in newspapers or whatever, in the trades. But a big question here is, was to Leslie's posts were those specifically telling people don't vote for Kate, don't vote for Danielle, don't vote for Viola, vote instead for Andrea. That's a question. There were some posts where people said that. Is that breaking the rules? Yes, it is. But is that the campaign or is that those voters specifically? Mm-hmm. Um, AKA is to Leslie behind it or is that Francis Fisher? 
And then furthermore, in 2014, uh, this is the last time I believe that a nomination was rescinded. And this nomination was for a song called Alone Yet Not Alone from a similarly small movie, Alone Yet Not Alone. Um, it's like a weird Christian movie. The song is really not great. Uh, and the song got nominated, and then the vote, of, uh, the nomination got taken back. And the reason that the nomination got taken back was because the guy who wrote the song was the former head of the music branch of the Academy. And so a lot of people owed him favors, and he basically went from place to place sending out messages saying, hey there, just want to let you know I have a song in the race, and you owe me one, so please vote for it. Um, yeah. And that crossed a line, and that's why it got uh, rescinded. So the question here is, what did the two Leslie team do? Did they simply email people and say, hey, could you share this, please? Is that against the rules? Probably, because it's saying, hi there, you have sway. Can you please post this exact post on your Twitter? Um, did they do that? Or was it actually grassroots? Did they send it to one person and then people kind of copied it and, and got the ball rolling? Was it genuinely grassroots? Or were they specifically telling people, hey there, I know you're friends with Andrea Riseborough. Wouldn't it be great to see her get a nomination? Post this. Yeah. No, I, I fully echo what you said there. Ultimately, what it comes down to me is that whole, which one was it? Was it the more natural campaign route or was it bribes or favors or what various things? Because as you mentioned, she has a lot of connections and this movie had a little bit of buzz, but it wasn't to the level of yeah. a woman king. It wasn't to the level of a till and even using uh, another a white nominee who was in the running. It wasn't to the level of a Babylon or an Empire of Light with margot robbie olivia coleman who was also like in that little mix of like they're probably not in but maybe they are so like there was in my eyes i know we talked about this before and people who are coming in who may not be very well versed in the oscars of how it was going blanchett and yo for their respective films of tar and everything overall at once seemed like the definite locks i know the posts were saying that oh there's mm -hmm. four locks like no there's there was two locks everyone else was up in the air michelle williams yeah. seemed in for the fablemans but there was room for mrs mm. she missed bafta that, she missed that was shaky after bafta and sag very yeah shaky. but still i thought the oscars they love spielberg they're not gonna snub spielberg's mom she's gonna get in somewhere just is it lead is it supporting and then to me I know I was kind of on a ledge with this, but I was there all season. Ana de Armas seemed pretty surely in for Blonde. Actors love her. Uh, her co-stars love her. Kind of what people are saying about Andre Riseborough now. of Like, oh, everyone loves her. Like, yeah, they do, but not to the level of Ana de Armas. Like, you even see someone during their awards acceptance speech of Colin Farrell take time out to be like, hey, I loved you in your movie. To me, that showed sign, hey, there's passion. Even the movie's hated. She's liked. There's your four. Fifth slot, that's what's open. Woman King seems yeah but also huge decline its package wasn't there till the performance makes sense it had the backing but it's a movie that people didn't watch like yes i know it got an a or an a plus cinema score people who did see it loved it including myself but getting people to see it was the issue so if there's stuff like that where yeah till could show up number one or number two on some ballots but also it's non-existent woman king could show up but it may be five on those ballots they do a rank scale for the acting ballots to leslie could show up on half the ballots, but if it's half yeah. that number one because of people seeing these posts, like, oh, we have to put her at one, that gets a skewing edge. Like, maybe overall, Danielle Deadweiler had more votes than Riseboro, but Riseboro had the higher sliding scale. Yeah. Now, I, I just want to say before we end this, none of, I, I just feel really bad for Andrea Riseboro for being at the center of this controversy because ultimately, 
this controversy is not talking at all about whether she deserved uh, a nomination. It's not talking at all about whether her performance was good. It's entirely centered around she did something bad. And I, d I don't think that this is her fault, no matter what mm -hmm. it is. I think that this is the fault of many different institutions uh, and a lot of systemic prejudice. And, and that should not reflect on Andrew Riseborough herself. She was not trying to exploit those prejudices. She was not trying anything. Um, her reaction was, was genuine surprise from what I read, that she didn't expect to be nominated. Um, I, I think that she's innocent there. So I, I'm just going to say I feel really bad that she's embroiled at the center of something that it really doesn't seem uh, she had a whole lot to do with. On top of that, I also feel bad for Davis and Deadweller as well. Obviously, they missed the nomination, but also all this extra stuff thrown on top of it. It's like salt in the wound. Like, hey, you missed, but guess what? You should have made it in, and it was cheating. Like, like yeah. I don't know. It, to me, it, it I, I feel bad for Violet because, like, going forward, she's probably going to be asked questions for her next big movie. She's like, oh, so what do you think about this? And, like, she's going to have to answer. Like, you can't really answer that because you're well, going to sound The answer like, is me they did a great job and you know it was an honor to be nominated the rest of the season right yeah i feel more bad for danielle deadweiler who this was mm -hmm. truly a role that could have not could have it's still going to kickstart a career um but this could have been a moment where we had a, a new legend born basically where no one mm -hmm. knew who she was a year ago and now here she is and guess what today we get to talk about one of my favorite movies, Scratch That. We're talking about my favorite movie of 2023 so far. Granted, I've seen like five technically 2023 movies, but missing. This movie rocks. Matt, you just saw this recently. What did you think about it? I did. So before we get into it, Missing is the new film from the team behind Searching about a young woman whose mother goes missing on vacation in Colombia, uh, and as she tries to track things down, it all unfolds on her computer screen, which if you've seen Searching, you know how that goes down. If you haven't seen Searching, what are you waiting for? Go watch it. It's such a good mystery. And this one follows suit. This is a twisty thriller that for, for the entire thing, it had me going. I had no idea where it was going. It continually surprised me, and by the end, I was shocked by where it ended up going. Uh, even more so, actually, I think, than Searching. I think Searching, to me, by the end, I was like, oh yeah, that makes that makes total sense. And, and I think I kind of got it at some point. With this one, there's some things in there that just had me like, whoa, okay. That adds entirely new layers to this. It is such a good mystery movie. Go in knowing as little as possible. Yeah, so if you haven't watched Missing yet, glowing reviews from both of us. I love this. Matt loved this. Go watch it. I don't care if you even come back. Watch this movie. Yeah. But if you have seen Missing, from here on out, will be spoiler discussion because those people should have left by now. And yes. I feel like you can't really talk about this movie much without spoilers. Because even saying it's twisty, it's turny, it has you expecting something to happen. But yeah. this movie delivers so much because, yes, it is twisty and turny. But it's not twisty and turning just to be like, haha, guess what? Here's another right turn. Here's another left. Here's crazy thing on the wall. It all it all makes sense. It's not like random yeah. stuff. It it adds to a larger story. Like you get little teases throughout. And I'm really excited to rewatch this. I've meant to do it for a while. I saw this at an early screening, loved it. I meant to go out opening weekend. Got a little busy, but I can't wait to rewatch this to see. Can I pick up on stuff throughout? Because yeah. Regardless of anything else with this movie, you got to appreciate the editing and the visuals because there's so much packed onto the screen where you could be looking to the left, 
but something's going on the right while you're supposed to be focusing on the left. And same thing, vice versa. Uh, searching did that as well, and searching was so rewarding on rewatch. So oh, yeah. I'm sure Missing does the same. Oh, one of my but favorite things most... is, is near the end, um, it's like months later, and in her text at the side of the screen, you see that Angel is still texting her, being like, hey, just checking in again. I'm, I'm wondering when you're back in L.A., because I really, I'd love to get my watch back at some point. And yeah. I pointed it out to my fiance. I was like, "Oh my god, look at that!" Like, did you, did you see that? And she was like, what? "Oh my god, that's so good." There's so many little details throughout. It would be so rewarding. Yes, definitely. But what even more so than the rewarding details? What I love most about this movie, and Searching had this as well, a great lead performance. And Stormy captivates yes. the screen. She's someone who's had a very interesting career path for me because she started off with A Wrinkle in Time, a very divisive movie to some, but since then. She's had great casting. She's everything she's been in has been great. She's usually been the highlights of most things she's been in, and that doesn't stop here. Um, with being a movie in the style of where you kind of have to stare at her for an entire nearly two hour runtime, and you, she just delivers. She brings you in. You feel invited. You feel connected to her character without really knowing much to start. And throughout the story, you're so invested in her. You want her to be okay. You want her family to be okay. You want everything to work out. And when each one of these wild left turns come out of nowhere, you're on board because she's on board. Yeah. Uh, Something that I think that both of these movies do well, that Searching and Missing do extremely well, is the emotional factor. I think they use the Pixar effect really well, where they start both of these movies off by getting you invested in the life of, of the characters and the family at the center of it. Um, in Searching, the film starts off with uh, all these clips of the family being together um, and then ultimately leading up to the mother dying. And the same thing happens here where the film starts with a, a clip of a father and daughter uh, playing on vacation and just being so like sweet together and then moving to seeing the main character dealing with the grief of not having her father. Um, I think that there's so much to be said for how this film uses emotions both to um to enhance our understanding of the characters but also to surprise us and here's my final warning if you haven't seen the movie and you still are here get the fuck out of here i'm about to drop a big bomb of a spoiler here so get the fuck out if you're in the podcast skip forward like 10 minutes i don't care just get out of here look at the description Look at the description and get the fuck out of here. So, the thing that uh, blew me away about Missing's use of emotion as deception is the way that that first clip feels so different at the beginning of the film when all we know is this is a father and daughter, when we're put into the main character, uh, into June's mindset of, wow, I miss my dad. And then juxtaposing it with when we see that same footage later on, but now we know the reason why this footage is being deleted. The reason why uh, she's packing up and moving away. It's that she's a victim of domestic violence, and that this is this man is an insane stalker who will stop at nothing mm-hmm. to find them. Um, it uses emotion to make us not even think that it's a possibility that this character could be behind it. Because we are convinced, not only is he dead, but even when he shows up at the door, I, at least I was not believing 
that he was going to be the bad guy. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even realize it was him at first until, like, they, they she was like, Dad? And I was like, wait, what? No, for like, me, it was as soon as he mind. takes the, the hood off. As soon as he takes the hood off, I was like, wait, what? And yeah. I, it didn't click for me that this even could be about domestic violence until much later. In the, not much later. Like, until it got into the sequence of, um, uh, you know, going back all these years mm-hmm. to 2000. Yeah, him explaining. Yeah, not even him explaining. When it goes to the clips of when mm-hmm. she's erasing all of her internet history and moving and all of that, and we see her doing the makeup tutorial of how to cover up a bruise. Um, yeah, that's that's like, it does such a good job of hiding it because you don't even suspect that this person that we see from this one video could be capable of this. But of course, yeah, uh, as in real life, the a lot of the time the people that we least expect to be capable of horrible things are the ones who can well you mentioned grace there and i want to shift over to the ensemble here because i think this movie has a great cast just like searching as well nia long's great as grace storm reed as i mentioned before delivers as june i even thought uh kevin lung was or ken lung was great as kevin like that's such a weird role to play and he fits like the awkwardness as well as the like like hey he's probably like a little like menacing underneath but the guy who played Javi was great. Oh, he had the much needed comedic Javi. relief throughout. And I I just love the the connection that June and Javi have throughout. The uh, you, uh going back to her father of James played by Tim Griffin, that would be the one to me was a little bit of a weak leak, but that is a very hard role to pull off because you like you said, you don't really know what this character's about. And then you get the reveal. And then, to me, it was a little bit over the top, and that's where some of my gripes with this movie comes, is that last act where it's very, very much, like, going for it. Uh, I still really love this movie. I would give it a very strong eight. But that yeah. last act, it's like, okay, you're a little much right now, but I'm still I'm still rocking with it. But overall, I thought the cast was great. Mm-hmm. We just did, um, earlier, we did our personal, like, extra add-ins for the Oscar nominations. And for me, this will be a very strong competitor for editing come next year. Yeah. Um, so something that I want to say about both Searching and Missing, and it's, when I first saw Searching, it was a 10 out of 10 for me. When I watched it again, I still love it, but it dropped out of, a, out of my 10 out of 10s. And the mm-hmm. reason for that is that I think that the thing that both of these films struggle with is figuring out how to make a cinematic conclusion to a mystery when we're still constrained to a laptop screen. Yeah. Um, And the difficulty there is that they break the rules. (laughs) They break the rules by making it all security camera footage. And like, yes, technically it still fits, but at the same time, it also doesn't. And they do it in searching mm-hmm. too. In searching, there's all these scenes where they plant video cameras in places. And at that point, if they're planting video cameras, it doesn't feel like anymore we're we're doing the the computer screen movie. It now feels like a found footage movie. And ultimately, that's where I think Missing's biggest weak point is: is that the conclusion of the movie feels like it's breaking its own rules um, by using this intercut footage i i agree with that for the most part but one thing i did like about breaking the rules in this one was the scenes where there was like the fake netflix show either about oh, searching or about that. missing i I, I love those sequences here because like you, the movie opens or not opens but like one of the first scenes is with one of those like wait that's searching but it's yeah. not it's people playing it and then the movie ends oh yeah with the same thing when i said i was missing. like wait that's not john cho that's not john yeah. cho 
Like, I was like, what are we doing? No here? way they he looks di- that much different. They had to like reshoot something like a year or two, or yeah. I guess it's been and four years. The since reveal that, but, yeah. that it was it's a true crime show is so good. And then I love at the end that yeah. she's watching the true crime show of of her own case, uh, and she now understands God, why do people watch this crap? Like, what is this? Um No, I, I like that a lot. I think there were a lot of creative choices here, but there are a lot of limitations that being on a computer screen give you, and ultimately it makes it so that the, in order to do a proper climax, you do have to break the rules that you've set up for yourself, which, you know, ultimately I think it impacts both searching and missing um, for the negative. Just slightly, they're still great films, they're still great mysteries, but, you know, do they leave the deepest impact on me lasting? Uh, not so much just because the conclusion they can't quite crack it fair enough fair enough my final thoughts here would be i i just thought this was a great time i love the acting performances the editing this is when i can't wait to rewatch, and i still hold true to what i said uh three weeks ago at this point this is the best january release uh we would go redo that draft now that it's eligible i would pick this first overall you said that this is your favorite movie of 2023 we won't talk about my favorite movie of 2023 for a couple of weeks but i just want to say that tonight I had the chance to watch Rye Lane, uh, which is playing Sundance right now, and it blew me away. And I can't wait to talk about it with you, Dylan, because I think that this has a chance of being your favorite movie of 2023, too. But as of right now, uh, Missing is great, but I saw two 2023 movies today, and of those two, Rye Lane blew my fucking mind. Um, And I can't wait to talk about that one with you. But Missing, excellent film, too. Truly excellent it's draft time, everybody. As Matt mentioned before, we are drafting supporting acting performances today. We got we got ten here. We're both going to get five. But as always, we post these on Twitter. We post these into the YouTube community tab. Make sure to vote because that matters for who gets to go first. And currently, I'm on a skid. I lost the last time we did a draft a few weeks ago with a January draft, and I still hold true that my January team was stacked. But Let's dive into this supporting. I feel like there's a clear number one, but Matt won last time, so mm-hmm. he gets to take this decision. So I'm so glad I get this first pick because I know if I didn't pick this, you'd pick this. Uh, so, yeah, this is so important as to why you get the first pick because sometimes you get a, a trump card. You get a, a, a pick that is just the ultimate pick here, and I think that we can both agree that the ultimate pick in the supporting actor category, well, in both of the supporting categories, actually, would be uh, Ki Hui Kwan in Everything Ever All at Once. Yeah. Now, yep. the, the thing about this performance is that there is so much love and life in this role. There's so much uh, emotion and heart. When you think about what this movie is, why Everything Ever All at Once works, you think about Kwan. Uh, Michelle Yeoh is the movie, but Quan is the heart of the movie. He's the beating heart, the reason why this film works, and that's why he's my first pick overall. Uh, not as only, not only is he locked to win the Oscar right here, but Quan is uh, is one of the most deserving winners that we've had in a very long time. Well, you mentioned Quan being the heart and soul of everything I ever all at once. I agree, he is. But one reason this movie works so well. It's for his co-star who's able to deliver a performance that a lot of people our age can resonate with. So give me Stephanie Sue and everything nice. overall at once. This was a very borderline performance to even get nominated, but I'm so happy she got in. She is amazing. 
she delivers what I think are some of the best dramatic scenes in this film, as well as some of the good comedy parts. Quan does these as well. Everyone in this movie does mm-hmm. this. This movie's called Everything Ever All at Once because it truly is. It delivers on all the quadrants. And Stephanie Sue's character gets to do that because she gets to be a villain. She gets to be a hero. She gets to be the relatable character. She gets to be a character that you despise, or one that you love. She gets to do everything. And this is just a very showy performance and one I love as well. So... We got the big two out of the way. I feel like we could both agree. We got yeah. numbers one and two. Here's where we can go different a little bit because there's some performances I know a lot of people love that I'm not the biggest fan of. I know there's performances I love that other people aren't as high on. But there's one that I can't not pick this because if you want to talk about the supporting category, supporting is someone who helps the movie get on another note. They can do that in a lot of scenes, or they can do that in just one scene. Oh. And there's one actor who came in for one scene this year and delivered maybe the best acting performance of anyone for about seven minutes, and that is Judd Hirsch in The Fablemans. Nice. Great choice. A lot of people are angry at this because it snubbed Paul Dano, but I gotta say, I prefer Judd Hirsch, honestly. I do too. I, I think that he is the the soul of this movie, That the, the key to the entire film of The Fablemans is in that scene. He represents every dream that Spielberg has. He represents mm-hmm. everything that Sammy Fableman will eventually become. Yeah. Art, family, it'll tear you apart. You know. You hit the nail on the head. Judd Hirsch's character is the thesis of the Fablemans. He embodies what the movie's trying to communicate. Just the rest of the movie is the physical character growth from Sammy getting into film to yeah. him becoming a filmmaker. But Judd Hirsch is like, this is what I am now. And here's how you got to see to become it. But now you up. You got two picks. Okay. Who are you pairing with Kihi Kwan? So first off, I have to take uh, the person I was terrified you were going to take. And it's Brian Tyree Henry. Uh, and the reason I'm taking Brian Tyree Henry in Causeway right here, not only because it's the most inspired nomination and one that I didn't expect at all, um, but because we're talking about characters that are the soul of a movie. And Brian Tyree Henry in Causeway, he is this movie. Even down to, they literally renamed this movie. I'm dead certain that the reason why this film is called Causeway is because they renamed it because they realized he was just that good in the movie. That's quite the snag there. Yeah, I, I feel good about that. I was worried that you were going to get him. So next up, I have to take Barry Keoghan uh, in The Banshees of Inishirin. Now, the reason I'm going with Barry right here, rather than Brandon, who uh, I, I love Brandon Gleason, but Barry Keoghan, not only has he captured the hearts and minds of many out there in the audience, but I just want to, I think my team's theme right now is the heart of the film. Yeah. And with Barry Keoghan, he has one scene in that movie, which truly is the heart of Banshees of Inishirin, which is the scene where he says, well, there goes that dream. To me, that is the moment where we understand the hurt that these characters have gone through, the struggle that they continue to go through, um, and, and the way that they're trapped in their situations. So that's why I'm picking Barry Keoghan. You had two great picks there. Honestly, that last one I was looking at, I was looking at Hirsch. I was looking at Tyree Henry. I was looking at Keoghan. I was like, I, I hope I can get two of them, but I can only take one. I went Hirsch just because he is the true definition of what a supporting performance can be. Just yeah. coming in, stealing the scene. But as you mentioned, Tyree Henry is the heart. Keoghan, to me, 
is the best acting performance in Banshees. But if you're going for the heart of your movies, I need to go for the scene stealers. I have Hirsch giving the big scene stealing scene of the Fablements. I have Sue every time she comes on and everything everywhere. She captivates your attention. So let's return to the supporting actress category and give me Angela Bassett for Black Panther. Wakanda I thought forever. so. When you said st- scene stealer, that was who I thought of. This is not my favorite performance of the one that's left, but she is very good. She doesn't have much screen time, but when she's on, she's so commanding. You cannot take her. You cannot take your eyes off of her. She just delivers everything that you want in a just textbook definition of a supporting actress performance. So the pair with that, I, I'm, I'm left here with a little bit of a choice because there's four people left. And to be honest, I don't really know where I want to go with this pick because there are four very different directions. You have a comedy performance. You have a very dry performance. You have a more heartwarming performance. And then you have the one I'm going to go with, which is kind of a combination of all of them. And that is Hong Chow and the Whale. Oh, damn it. Damn it, Dylan. Regardless of what people think about the Whale, they come out saying Hong Chow is great. She is. She had an amazing 2023, and I wish this nomination was for the menu. It's not. It's for the Whale, so I won't talk about the menu. But she, I guess it's kind of sniping from you. She kind of is the heart of the Whale. Like, yes, Brendan Fraser character is the true heart, but Hong Chow adds a lot to his character as well as to the movie as a whole giving it some sort of life and giving some sort of merit she delivers so much in to someone who's not a huge fan of that movie she also offers a breath of fresh air for a different perspective and a different angle to be like okay i can still enjoy this movie from this perspective so even though i'm not a huge fan of the whale and not a huge fan of black panther wakanda forever i am a huge fan of both of these performances you know what for my next pick give me jamie lee curtis i talked about kwan as the heart of the movie Jamie Lee Curtis does something else for it. Uh, What she does is, if Quan is the heart of the movie, Curtis is the heart of the campaign. Curtis is the Mm -hmm. person who's been out there pounding the concrete, getting people to vote for this movie, showing people how special this movie has been, how everything ever all at once has been giving people uh, who have been in the industry forever and have not gotten recognition a chance to finally be recognized for their work. Jamie Lee Curtis is hilarious in this movie. She, for so long, her comedic talents have been underappreciated, and she does such a great job here. Uh, So Jamie Lee Curtis has got to be my first choice right here. Uh, It might not be the most versatile or deep performance that we have here, but it is so funny. It is so, shows so much range for her. And ultimately, it just shows Jamie Lee Curtis is really one of the reasons for this film's success and one of the reasons why this film is resonating with a lot of voters and after that i'm left with two banshees people left so one of the banshees i'm choosing between these two banshees people and ultimately while i know a lot of people would go with one of these i have to stick to my heart and i have to go with brendan gleason it is heartbreaking to see Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell's characters basically go through a breakup. But in my opinion, it's more heartbreaking when Colin Farrell's sister leaves him to go find his, go find her own life. And he's set there to have to reconcile with, hey, my best friend, essentially my sister has left me. And my real best friend doesn't want to talk to me. What do I do now? And Carrie Condon adds a very interesting dynamic to this movie because the rest of the movie is so dour it's so negative it's so it's so 
hurtful to the individuals in the film, but Carrie Condon is the light of the movie. She sees everything in the most positive way. She's trying to be there for Colin Farrell's character to try to encourage him, like, hey, it could be worse. Let's try to focus more on you instead of bothering him. And then she's also there for Brendan Gleeson's character, like, hey, he's not that bad. Like, yeah, he is dumb, but, like, what you're doing isn't as, like, nice. You, like, you could try to help this. And she also, for better or for worse, helps Barry Kigan's character. Yes, she rejects him, but she's there trying to give him opportunities to become a better person. And she's very much, if you want to mention, like, someone like uh, Barry Kigan or Ki Kwan being the heart of their movie, Carrie Condon is that as well. She's the the joyous, the most joyous person in Banshees. And overall, I'm just really happy with my team. So let's run over the two teams we have here before we uh, wrap up. Okay. So starting off, I have Ki Hui Kwan, Brian Tyree Henry in Causeway, Barry Keoghan in The Banshees of Inishirin, Jamie Lee Curtis in Everything Ever All at Once, and finishing us off, Brendan Gleeson in The Banshees of Inishirin. And over on Team Dill, we started things off with Stephanie Sue and Everything Everywhere All at Once. The scene stealer of the year, Judd Hirsch and the Fablements. Another scene stealer, Angela Bassett and Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Everyone's favorite part of the whale, Hong Chow. And we wrap things up with the heart of Banshees, Carrie Condon. Hey, I know originally we were talking about just drafting four apiece, but I like having the fives because it just adds an extra dynamic of gameplay. Like, okay, because mm-hmm. like when I came up with my uh, pick there with Chow, I was like, okay, I know I want Condon, but I feel like I can wait because there's two Banshees people left. I'm going to get one of them, and I'd rather have Chow than Jamie Lee. So I'll go Chow here and yeah. then hope you don't go double Banshee. Overall, I-, I like both of our teams. I don't think anyone has a super – Head. So, like, I know you mentioned Kiki Kwong could be a trump card, but I think this, I think, I think so. both of these categories are so deep. I think you can look throughout and be like, hey, there's so much sensational and so special performances, but who knows? Ultimately, maybe Kiki Kwong is just a trump card because he's just that good. Thank you for tuning into another edition of Fantasy Film, but we went over a lot today. Uh, we gave a film ball update, we went over the Oscar nominations and gave one extra one that we wish could have got in there. We talked about the best actress fiasco, as well as returning to the draft after taking a week off, going over supporting performances. And next week, we will definitely talk about Triangle of Sadness, one I can't wait to rewatch. I was a little bit lower on it the first time than you were, but I'm I'm very much anticipating watching it again because I rewatched the trailer after I got. I mean, it's like I still remember why this was so highly anticipated. I can't wait to see if it plays a little better at home. We'll also watch a second movie. Well, that will be. That's still up in the air. We'll see. <laughs> but most importantly, we will both watch Two Leslie and report back yes. about that leading actress Next nomination. Week, two Leslie review coming up, and we can't wait. Now, something I, I just want to return to, I mentioned this a little bit earlier about Rye Lane. Um, I just want to give like a quick tiny shout out to this. Um, Rye Lane is is literally one of the most assured directorial debuts I've ever seen. And if this is not nominated for screenplay, at the very least, next year at the Oscars, I riot. I riot. I will riot. Well, I promise that. If Searchlight doesn't push this, there's hell to pay. There truly is. So Searchlight has this. Searchlight has this, but it's releasing in March. Oh, okay. I was gonna say this could replace poor things as our big but searchlight. Here's can... the thing: we're we're not. The Oscar season is dead. I think the yeah. Oscar season is dead. We're seeing so many films outside of the Oscar season nominated this year. So what is it that would 
prevent something like Rylane from getting in when it's this goddamn good? The answer is that it's very, very catered to Gen Z. It would be like Sorry to Bother You getting a nomination. It's not like Sorry to Bother oh, okay. You, but it's a similar aesthetic. It's a similar tone. Um, it's it's like a very Gen Z rom-com. Think okay. Before Sunrise as directed by Spike Jones. Got it, got it, got it. Because my big thing with the search, I was like, oh, this could maybe be there. Like, like the film they send to a f- festival that we normally yeah. get in the later parts of the year. But that's still probably going to be poor things. But yeah. regardless, I'm really looking forward to that. I can't wait to see all these movies from Sundance that people are talking about because Magazine Dreams with Jonathan Majors is very high on my list. Can't wait to watch that mm-hmm. along with everything else there. But until next time, my name's Dill. And my name is Matt. And thank you for watching Fantasy Film Ball. Thank you for tuning to this episode of Fantasy Film Ball with Matt and Dill. Keep up to date with us on Twitter at @filmball. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. We even upload a video format of the podcast to YouTube if you want to see our faces. Thank you for listening to this episode of the show, and come back next week.